welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! So we are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, and only a handful of flour in a jar, and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it, and bring it to me. And afterward, make yourself make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And, he, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth and faith and love, that we may be obedient to your will and live always for your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Sisters on the Planet is a video series that was put out uh, years ago by Oxfam International. And it's an it's a organization that deals with poverty around the world. And this particular video series was, about, was, was highlighting women around the world that were facing difficult circumstances due to climate change. Martina was a woman uh, who lives in a village in Uganda, and one of, the one of the videos was about her and about how her and her other villagers were battling and dealing with desertification and drought in rural Uganda. And in the film, she discusses how she has to walk further and further away from her village to collect fruit from trees and to collect sticks for firewood. And in this short film, the filmmakers follow her and follow this group of women, of women on a day's journey as they do this. And near the end of the film, she says this, What can I do to end this thirst? Even if you have food, you still need water to cook it. What can I do? I get so anxious. There aren't enough words to express the pain to you. 
It's a short film, but it's heartbreaking. It's difficult at times uh, to watch. This woman who is gathering sticks to cook the meager food that she has because of a severe drought. And throughout the film, and especially at the end, you see her worry as she comes back home to two children, not sure how long she can adequately feed them. In the passage I just read this morning, there are some echoes there. There are some connections, some parallels that are fascinating. There's a widow. She's in rough shape. She's out of food. She's at the end of her rope. Her jar of flour, her jug of oil is nearly spent. And she's collecting just a couple of sticks. Literally, the Hebrew says two sticks. She's collecting just a couple of sticks to make a final meal for her and for her son, and then she thinks they're going to die of starvation. Very few of us that are here in this room or watching online are dealing with empty refrigerators or pantries, uh, pantry shelves that are bare. However, all of us have jars of something that are running dangerously low, that are about to be empty. We feel impoverished in some way, needing to be filled up. And as we look at this text this morning, as we look at what God's word says to us, I want to ask you, what is that jar for you? What's in it? What do you feel helpless about? What do you feel needy for right now? And that could be something physical. It could also be something spiritual or mental or emotional or relational. Of what resources do you only have a handful left like this woman? Maybe it's energy, creativity, money, influence, patience, love, kindness, joy, or maybe motivation, or maybe your health, or maybe just time, which is one of the things that seems to be the most scarce in our world today. So from here, I want to look at this passage, and I want to talk in three parts. First, we're going to talk about the benevolence of Yahweh. Second, the bankruptcy of Baal. And third, the blessing of obedience. So benevolence, bankruptcy, and blessing. First, the benevolence of Yahweh. So Elijah and this widow, they have a scarcity mindset in this passage. Maybe you noticed this as I read, but look back at the verses. Notice how meager Elijah's requests are. He asks for, in verse 11, a morsel of bread. And later, verse 13, a little cake. And see, too, how the woman describes her resources. Verses 12, she says, only a handful of flour and a little oil. Scarcity. They're in bad shape with a slender, only a slender supply of food between them. But God shows up in this passage. And he provides not just enough, but he provides a miraculous, superabundant, unending supply of what they need. Verses 15 and 16. And she and her household, she and he and her household, I can never get that right, all those ands. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This is a picture of extravagant, generous provision. Not just enough, but over and abound, over and abounds, more than enough. 
The American author and journalist Tanahishi Coates in his book, his first book, The Beautiful Struggle, he shares a story about his father, who was a former Black Panther and a practicing fascist who banned religion from the child, their childhood home. And his father one day catches Coates' older brother, who he calls Big Bill, praying at the kitchen table, and his dad orders him to stop. And this is what he says to his brother, to Tanahishi Coates' brother. You want to pray? Pray to me. I put food on this table. And while this may be true in some ways from a purely material perspective, what this passage teaches us and what the scriptures teach us as a whole is that this statement is actually completely false from a spiritual perspective. See, the scriptures teach that God is not a deity who is far off and who is unconcerned from our well-being or our daily affairs and our daily needs, but instead he is benevolent and he deals mercifully with his creation. Listen to these passages. In Psalm 145, the psalmist proclaims, The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus himself teaches that his heavenly Father makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, that he sends rain on the just and the unjust. He provides for everyone In Acts 14, to a crowd in the city of Lystra, the Apostle Paul preaches that God did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And it's this truth about the goodness of God, the benevolence of God, that's why followers of Jesus, we stop before we eat our meals and we give thanks. We pray before our meal. And we're not blessing the food to like make us healthy because we think it could be poisoned or something. What we're doing is we're blessing God. And we thank God. It's a simple way of recognizing that that food is there on our table at that moment because of God's goodness and because of his providence. And as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, that all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Many of you know that I grew up in East Tennessee. I'm not uh, a native of South Jersey. If you didn't know that, there you go. Now you do know. So I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee originally, and I came to faith and started following Jesus in a Baptist church. So a little bit of a different Protestant uh, tradition than, than we are in now. And in my church growing up, there was, there was very little and basically none of the ancient liturgical uh, pieces that we use here at Liberty Church Collins, but already in our service we've done many of them, like the call to worship or the prayer of confession, the words of pardon. Later we'll do the prayers of the people, we'll have a benediction, those different liturgical pieces where there's some call and response. We didn't do those in my church growing up. However, there was one call and response that sticks in my mind very clearly that I remember us doing. The lead pastor, Pastor Sam, or maybe the worship leader, whoever was singing and and leading in worship, would say, God is good. And the congregation would reply, all the time. And then it would flip. And then the leader would say, all the time. And then the congregation would reply, God is good. 
And I can remember as like elementary school, middle school, into high school, like rolling my eyes, thinking this was the silliest, dumbest thing, and I didn't like it. I thought it was, it, it, it was unnecessary. However, as I stand here now as a 33-year-old, I haven't stepped foot in that church in a long time. The benefit of this liturgical practice is on display, even in this moment as I preach, because I can easily recall it. I didn't have to Google it. I remembered it from when I was a kid, and it's a simple reminder and a good reminder of the truth of God's benevolence. God is good. It's who he is. It's simply a part of his essence. It's simply a part of the very fabric of his divine being. He's good. A minute ago, I asked you to consider what was in your jar. Picture that jar, not like a ball, like glass jar, not a modern jar, but a ceramic jar, like with a handle, almost like a jug. What's, what's in that jar? Hopefully you've thought of something by now. But I want to encourage you, as you think about that thing, I want to challenge you this week that in light of this truth of God's goodness, pray the Lord's Prayer every day this week. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then when you get to this point, and give us this day our daily bread, I want you to pause, stop, and reflect on that for a moment. Sometimes it's easy to say this prayer and to breeze right over that, but that's a powerful prayer, asking God to provide what we need for that day and that day alone. Stop on that. Tell God explicitly what you need. Cry out to him about that thing in your jar that is nearly spent. The scriptures tell us that God cares for us, that he loves us, and so he wants us to cast our anxieties and our cares upon him. So I challenge you to do that this week. Pause there. Give us today our daily bread. Tell God what that is and to let him provide for you what you need for that day. This story is not just about the benevolence of Yahweh, but it's equally about the bankruptcy of Baal. The bankruptcy of Baal. This is the second of three sequential miracle stories in this chapter, chapter 17 of 1 Kings. Jim preached on the first one last week, and all of these stories are establishing Elijah's prophetic ministry. They're slowly building towards his dramatic confrontation with the wicked Israelite king, King Ahab. And then following that, there's this royal rumble with the prophets of Baal in the next chapter, chapter 18. But interestingly, in this story, as opposed to the one Jim preached on last week, which is a powerful story, but things escalate up one level, and the next week they will again. But things escalate a little bit here in, in our story. God tells Elijah specifically to go to this town, Zarephath. Zarephath. It's a Phoenician town. It's north of Israel, on the coast. I just lost my place, I'm sorry. There we go. Sorry. That's a little bit more of a manuscript than I normally have, and I lost, I lost my place. Zarephath is a Phoenician town north of Israel in the vicinity of, of two important port cities, Tyre and Sidon. It was at the very heart of Baalism. This is, and it's actually also the home 
of Jezebel, who is the wife of King Ahab. Ahab married Jezebel for political purposes to have this alliance with these cities in Phoenicia. But this wicked woman, Jezebel, brought with her the worship of Baal. And she, by all accounts, is the one who introduced it in this formal way in Israel. And, and things ratchet up in this story because God doesn't only want to defeat Baal and Israel, but he actually goes into Baal's own territory. God wants to defeat Baal on his own turf. And God tells Elijah at the very beginning to, to leave where he is and to go to this town, to leave the relative security and serenity of the desert where he was on the edge of the desert east of the Jordan River and to go straight into the mouth of the lion. In the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, he's telling Elijah to go out of the frying pan and straight back into the fire. Last week, Jim talked a little bit about this storm god, Baal. He was the god that the, 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 those who worshipped him believed brought rain. And, that in turn, and, and also, because he brought rain, he was also the one responsible for crops growing. So he was responsible for the food that they ate as well. But we see here in these verses that Baal actually can't do the very thing that he was supposed to do. Baal, you have one job, and he couldn't do it. Even on his own turf, he was powerless to overcome the drought. Baal could not provide this widowed woman her daily provisions, and from her perspective, her false god had failed her. The Anglican theologian John Stott has written, Idols are not limited to primitive societies. There are many sophisticated idols too. An idol is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place of God, uh, occupies the place God should occupy is an idol. Covetousness is idolatry. Ideologies can be idolatries. So can fame, wealth, and power sex, food, alcohol, and other drugs, parents, spouse, children and friends, work, recreation, television and possessions, even church, religion, and Christian service. See, in the 21st century, we may, we may, we may not be tempted to lay prostrate before an image, a physical image of a god like the storm god Baal, but we do regularly bow down to idols that routinely overpromise and also routinely underdeliver. We take good things and we turn them into ultimate things, believing that they will satisfy. We elevate the creation above the Creator God, trusting that they will make us happy, that they will make us fulfilled. There's another Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah who penned one of my very favorite, but also one of my least favorite verses in all of Scripture. And I say that because I love the imagery of this verse, but one of the reasons I don't like it is because God seems to bring it to my mind regularly through his Holy Spirit when I sin. And this is what Jeremiah writes. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, we in the 21st century are much like Martina and the other women in her Ugandan village, that we are digging in a muddy hole in search of drinking water 
when there's actually a raging river of fresh, clean water at our disposal that God offers us. He offers us in abundance the very thing that we need, namely himself. But foolishly, we look to other things. We look to other people, and we look to ourselves. Our false beliefs, our false gods can't rescue us. Our pet sins can't fill up that jar. The secular ideologies on the right and the left, which we look to for salvation, can't actually redeem us in the end. All of these things are broken cisterns that can hold no water. St. Augustine has famously written, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. It's powerful. So what are your idols? What are your idols? What things are you tempted to trust instead of God? What are those things for which you strive? Those things you look to in order to achieve security or a sense of well-being? And I would challenge you this week, in addition to praying the Lord's Prayer, I would challenge you to reflect on that, to really think about that. What are the idols that you bow down to? And if you need from help, let me give you three places that you can look. Number one, open your phone. And when you unlock your phone, where, what app does your thumb default towards? The second thing, open your calendar. Look at your calendar. What fills your non-work time? Or maybe the third one, open your credit card statement. Where are you spending your discretionary income? Those three things taken together, along with other things, might help point you towards something that could be an idol in your life. But again, this story is not just about dissuading God's people from idolatry, but it's also about persuading them to obey God. So the blessing of obedience. The blessing of obedience. Notice, interestingly, and this is actually one of my favorite things. Here's a quick hermeneutics lesson for you. Hermeneutics being the art of, of studying scripture. Look for, when you read passages of scripture, look to see if there is a phrase or a theme that starts a part of scripture and ends a part of scripture. It's called bookending or bracketing or framing or different commentators will call it different things. And when I studied this passage this week, this is one of the things that stuck out to me that this story is bracketed by the phrase, the word of the Lord. Verse 7 and in verse 16, the very first verse and the very last verse, the word of the Lord. Jim mentioned this again some last week, so I don't want to rehash all of it, but when the book of First and Second Kings was likely completed, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the people of God were in exile. They were serving their punishment for ignoring God's covenant, for ignoring God's promises, his commands. They had disobeyed God, and they had trusted in their own idols. And in this story, what the author is doing is using an unusual character. This is something God loves to do, by the way to use an unusual character to show his people the right way to live. This foreigner, this widow, is one who would have been on the fringes of society in her own culture and would have been totally unwelcome in Israel because she was a Gentile, not an Israelite. But God is using her, the author is using her to demonstrate that the proper response to his word, the proper response to the word of the Lord, she believes it. 
and he blesses her and provides for her and her son all that she needs and more from that day forward through the rest of the drought. And so God's message here to his people who were sitting in exile is it's not too late. It's not too late. The author is telling a disobedient nation who is rightfully suffering the consequences of their sin in exile because of their disobedience. He's telling them that restoration is possible. His blessing can return to them if they would turn from their idolatry and turn towards him, trust him, and obey like this woman did. The promises that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're not null and void. And if they would walk in his ways, he once again would be their God and they would be his people. And he would still bless them and through them bless all nations. And just as God, through the prophet Elijah, went to this woman, so God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has come to us. He brings not only physical provision, but also spiritual, relational, and emotional nourishment. In Jesus, we are forgiven of our failings, our worshiping of idols and ideologies, and we're reconciled to the Father. We're made clean, made whole, and we're given a second chance at new life. Jesus came and said, it's not too late. It's not too late. As we close, I want to give you one more thought, one more challenge from this passage. Notice the irony in verse 13. This is interesting to me as well. Elijah says, do not fear. And then he asks her to do something absolutely terrifying. He explicitly asks this widowed woman with her two sticks in hand who has no food at home, hey, go and make a cake for me first. And only after you bring it to me, only then make one for yourself and for your son. Her active obedience was risky. It was risky. She had to ignore that the pain in her stomach from hunger. She had to deny her motherly instincts, her own physical needs. What an amazing display of faith. What an amazing display of trust in the word of the Lord, a trust in God himself. During his earthly ministry one day, Jesus is with his disciples in a synagogue, and he sits across from the treasury where people will come and deposit uh, their money, their giving. And, and this is what the text says. This is from Mark. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. See, the woman in, this, in our passage this morning, as well as this woman that Jesus is watching and telling his disciples about, they demonstrate radical generosity. And see, our natural tendency when we're faced with scarcity is to do what? We hoard. We self-protect. We close our hands. But that's not what it looks like to walk the paths of God. The way of Jesus instead calls us to share 
to be selfless and to open our hands, even in times of hardship, even in times of difficulty. And it's because of God's surpassing abundance, because of his goodness, because of his benevolence, that we can, like this woman, be radically generous. And so again, a third thing, in addition to meditating on the Lord's Prayer this week, in addition to doing some excavation on the idols of your heart, I want to give you one more point. And this one is going to stretch you a little bit, and it might make you a little bit more uncomfortable. Look for ways this week to give out of your scarcity, not out of your abundance. Again, picture the jar, the thing that you're holding, the thing that you're running out of, that you have little of. How could you share what's in that jar, even though you have only a handful? How could you share that with someone this week? Again, whether that's energy or creativity or money or influence or patience or love or kindness or joy or motivation or your health or your time or something else that you only have a handful of, how could you share that this week? That's the way of Jesus. So we share, we give, we're generous out of our scarcity, not just out of what we have lots of. This past week, the New Testament reading in the Book of Common Prayer, which I use when I do my own daily devotions, uh, on Wednesday, the New Testament reading was from 1 John chapter 5, and verse 3 says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. These words from the Apostle John, which sound contradictory at first, They're only true. His commands are only not burdensome because God is good, because God is benevolent, because he is the overflowing source of all good, because he is the one the scriptures say gives good gifts to his children, because he is the one who has promised in Jesus, in the words of the Apostle Paul, to work out all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So Liberty Church Collinswood, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.